scripture reading for this morning comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. And this is the word that we need today because the church needs to be reminded how we ought to behave, how we ought to conduct ourselves, how we ought to live. And this is why Paul wrote the letter to 1 Timothy, to remind them, to tell them, church, this is how you ought to uh, behave and conduct yourselves with one another, as well as to the watching world. You know, one scholar defines this uh, term, this verb, conduct, or to behave this way. He says, the word for to behave describes what we would call a man's walk and conversation. It describes his whole life and character. But it specially describes him in his relationships with other people. As it, as it has been said, the word in itself lays it down that a Christian church member's personal character must be excellent and that his personal relationships with other people should be a true fellowship. So Paul's concerned with our conduct, how we relate to each other and to the world. And I think he has two communities in mind as he's writing this letter. First of all, he is concerned with how the church there in Ephesus, and by extension, our church here, how we relate to each other. I mean, are we representing Christ well to each other? He's concerned with that. And he's also concerned with the broader community of the city of Ephesus. And if he was writing this letter directly to us today, it would be the city of Augusta. And he would be concerned about those who are not Christians in our community. And as they look upon the church, the Hill Baptist Church, would they be seeing something that resembles Jesus? And what Jesus stands for and teaches and offers them. And so Paul has these two communities, I believe, in mind as he's writing this letter to Timothy. And he's concerned whether, you know, we, in our conduct, whether we encounter, you know, a brother in Christ or whether we encounter a stranger on the street. He's very concerned with how our faith is making its way through our lives. He wants to see that as consistent as possible. And the problem is, both in the church there in Ephesus and in our church as well, and just in the Christian life, is sometimes what we do does not always line up with what we say we believe. Right? That's what sin is. We prayed about earlier. We confessed to the Lord, realizing that, you know, in light of who you are, God, and what your word says, I recognize that my life does not always line up with that. And I confess that, and I thank you for your forgiveness through Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of what Christ has done for us, and God brings about change in our hearts and cleanses us through Christ. That's wonderful. And we, we, went, we acknowledge that, and we... Uh, thank God for His forgiveness. But we always, just don't always conduct ourselves the way we ought to. So Paul's writing to the church and he's wanting to see our conduct line up as much as possible to 
what we say we believe. And in verses 14 and 15, Paul reminds Timothy, and by extension the church in Ephesus there, he reminds them who they are, he reminds them whose they are, and he reminds them of what they've been entrusted with as the church. And he does this by giving three descriptions of the church. And I want to walk through these three descriptions this morning. The first description Paul uses to describe the church is the household of God. You see that in verse 14. And the word Paul uses for household is the Greek word oikos, which means house. And a house is where someone lives, right? I mean, this is, you know, simple. I get that. And you probably get that too. A house is where someone lives. Okay? And so Paul's telling us that the church is the house of God. Now, we need to get on the same page here. I want to make sure we're all on the same page. When I say church, I'm not talking about this building. Okay? You know, the Bible doesn't use church in that way. This is one of those kind of unfortunate adaptations of this word over time. Where when we think of church, we think of a building. You know, this church building. And actually, when the Bible talks about the church, it's, the Bible's talking about the people of God. Okay? The, the people of God that have been called out in Christ and assembled together. And so, what they used to call the, uh, the church building, like we would say, hey, we're going to the church building, they would actually used to call this the meeting place. This would be the meeting place of the church. Because the church is the people. And so, we need to make sure we're on the same page with that. Uh, when, you, when, you read the, when you read the word church in the Bible, it is talking about the people of God, not the place where the people of God meet. And so Paul describes the church as the house of God or the household of God, which, should, you know, which was a, uh, I'm sure, just a, a fantastic thought if you were in, in the first century world, especially if you came, to, came from a Jewish background. This was just an amazing concept. Because if you think about it, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that Moses built the tabernacle. It's like a tent-like structure. And then Solomon built the temple. And these were places where God's special presence would dwell among his people. And so these were houses of God. And now Paul says, okay, now the church is the house of God. Or, you know, the people of God is the house of God. Of God, And this is a big shift in how God relates to his people. So instead of the people of God going to a specific location to meet with God, now the one trying God comes to each person and meets with them individually and dwells them individually if that person opens themselves up for that. And the way you do that is you open the door of your life And you accept Christ into your life. And what that does is that puts you in a right relationship with God. So instead of the people of God going to a specific location to meet with God where he dwells, God now dwells in his people through faith in Jesus Christ. Big shift there. And so you can imagine them hearing this. Okay, the church is the house of God. Now we are the place that God dwells in us. That is such a fantastic truth. And uh, Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 6.16. He says it this way. He says, We are the temple 
of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so this is why, just follow me, this is why it's so illogical to think that we would behave one way here and then behave another way apart from Sunday morning somewhere else, when we go somewhere else. You see, that just doesn't make sense because why would you behave one way here and then behave another way somewhere else if God is with you in both places? I could understand if God was only, if he lived in this building, in only this building, if his special presence was just in this sanctuary, then we would, when we come into this place, perhaps we would behave differently than if we were going to, you know, Augusta Mall or something like that. But if God dwells within the Christian, that means he goes where we go. His special presence dwells with each believer in Christ and he goes where we go. Which means we should probably be a little more consistent with how we behave, right? I mean, our conduct should be very similar this morning as it is on Monday morning and Wednesday afternoon and Saturday night. Because God is with us. And this is why Paul is telling us that our conduct, how we behave, how we walk and talk, should reflect the fact that we are the house of God. Each of us. God dwells within us. And therefore, we want to represent Him well, whether we're gathered here on Sunday morning, or we're gathered with our friends on Thursday night, or we're watching the game on Saturday afternoon, whatever it may be. God lives in us. We are the household of God. And so Paul is just reminding us, this is the truth. This is, this is true of you. This is who you are. You are the household of God. And the second description that Paul uses of the people of God is that we are the church of the living God. And the word that Paul uses that is translated church is the Greek word ekklesia, which literally means a company of people that have been called out and assembled together. So we are an assembly of people that have been called out together. And one uh, commentator said it this way, he said, in Athens, uh, the ekklesia was the governing body of the city. And so what they would do is they would call out the citizens and say, we're going to gather together. We have some business to attend to. And then the citizens would gather and then they would make decisions for Athens. Now, here's the issue, though, with that is that the call would go out inviting them to come and be a part of the assembly. But not everyone would come. Only some would come. And those who would come would be part of the assembly. And those who were not there were not part of the assembly. And so the parallel is that the church is made up of people who have answered God's call to salvation through Christ. We have been called out of the kingdom of, the, of this world. And we have been called into the people of God. And we assemble together. We gather together. So we've been called out of the world. We assemble together to worship God together. And this is something that's been a pattern uh, for the people of God uh, all throughout history. And there are several reasons for this. One, you know, it's not good for man to be alone. We see that from the very beginning in creation. The writer of Ecclesiastes tells us that two are better than one. Because if you fall down, somebody can come along and pick you up. And we see in the Old Testament, the people of God gather 
for celebration and worship on a regular basis and several special occasions. And this same type of pattern carries over into the New Testament. And we see the New Testament uh, church meeting together to worship. Rarely do you see, as you read your Bible, rarely do you see someone alone. There's always other, there are always other believers around. Because you gather together, you assemble together. We see the importance of community. And so it quickly, quickly became the norm for the Christians to gather weekly to worship the risen Christ on Sundays. And as this practice continued over time, you know, some Christians would um, you know, allow their participation in the assembly, the, the literal assembly of the people of God every week, to dwindle. In other words, you kind of stop gathering. And so as that began to happen, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, he says, You let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. This is that whole emphasis on conduct again. Let us, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together or to assemble as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, if you don't assemble with the people of God, it's going to be hard for the people of God to encourage you in your walk with God. You know, if I am not here with you on Sundays, it's going to be hard for you to speak into my life and encourage me as well, to uh, see my faith and my life merged together uh, in more fruitfulness uh, throughout the week. And so this gathering together, this assembling together of the, uh, of the people of God, the church of the living God, is very beneficial in that it helps us in our conduct, which is why Timothy's pinning this, I mean, why Paul's pinning this letter to Timothy, because he's very concerned with how faith and life merge together. And so when we gather... We are reminded of who God is. You know, we, we hear the scriptures read. We, we sing the scriptural truths. We, we rub shoulders with each other. We pray for each other. We encourage each other and challenge each other. And we remind each other of what God is calling us to do. And these challenges and these truths, they refine our thinking, which in turn refines our conduct. In that our conduct begins to align more with who the people of God should be. And so then we are able to represent Jesus to one another as well as to the city of Augusta more accurately. So we are the, the ecclesia, the called out ones who assemble to worship the living God. The third way Paul describes the church is found at the end of verse 15. He calls the church a pillar and buttress of, and buttress of the truth. So he uses a metaphor of, of how a building is constructed and supported to describe the responsibility of the church. Now, when you hear the word pillar, what do you think of? Well, this group, you probably think of the haunted pillar. You know. <laughs> the haunted pillar you know, that was at Fifth uh, and Broad Street for uh, several years until somebody ran over it this past December. And so it's no longer there. But I think there's a GoFundMe campaign to try to rebuild it somewhere. I don't know. But anyway, that's you know, when I think of pillar and buttress of truth, I think the haunted pillar. And you see the haunted pillar down there is 
kind of a, not a very impressive structure. It was kind of a small pillar and it's not really holding up anything, but you know, it's on Wikipedia and it's, you know, has a, its own um, plaque and things like that. But anyway, that's what we think of now. But if you were in uh, Ephesus in the first century, uh, you would have a different idea of pillar. But if you heard this word pillar, what you would think of uh, is the temple of Diana. And I want to tell you just a little bit about this. Uh, one scholar says it this way. He says, the greatest glory of Ephesus was the temple of Diana or Artemis. The temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. And one of the features of that temple was its pillars. There were in it 127 pillars. Every one of them the gift of a king. All of them were made of marble. And some of them were studded with jewels and overlaid with gold. So a little different than the haunted pillar. <laughs> I think the haunted pillar was concrete. I didn't see any jewels or anything on there. But these, these were made of marble studded with jewels, overlaid with gold. And so very beautiful. And uh, another scholar mentioned that you know, all these beautiful 127 pillars held up this, this magnificent roof, shiny, magnificent, beautiful roof. And so when you, when you talked about a pillar, most likely the people in Ephesus would, would think about that temple and all those beautiful pillars that were supporting this structure. And so Paul says... Well, the church, the church is a pillar of the truth. The church is a pillar of the truth, the truth of who God is and what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And there's two ways that we we function as pillars of the truth. One, we proclaim the truth, we speak the truth, and then we also practice the truth. So we practice what we preach. But we do preach it, we teach it, we say it, and we also do it. And so there's this teaching, and there's this uh, believing and practicing, the proclaiming, the practicing, the teaching, the living. Um, you know, the, truth, the truth of God, God's truth, is made known to the watching world by the church teaching the Word of God and then putting God's Word, what He says, these truths, on display through our lives on a day-by-day basis as we seek to live out our faith. So our lives serve as pillars for the truth of God. Now, don't misunderstand me. Your life doesn't prove whether or not God's Word is true. It's true in and of itself because it comes from God. But what your life can do is to uh, give yourself more of a platform for the credibility of what you're talking about. Because if you're actually trying to live by what you believe and they see that alignment, that's going to give you more support to actually proclaim the truth and for people to actually believe that what you're saying is true. So we are, we are pillars of God's truth. And so every one of you, every one of, if you're a Christian, every one of you is a pillar. You are, you are a pillar. You are supporting something. You are putting something on display. And so the question is, what are you supporting? What what truth are you proclaiming through your life, through your words? what, What is it that you're propping up, that you are putting out there for the world to see? In your conduct, the way you carry yourself, even throughout the week, it gives evidence... 
that you believe that God's word is true. You know, you may have heard this said before, but you know, if someone was trying to put together a case in order to, to prove whether or not you are a Christian, so to put together a case to try to prove you're a Christian or not, you know, would they be able to gather enough evidence to convict you? In other words, through your words, through your deeds, how you carry yourself day in, day out, would you be able to be convicted as a Christian? Or would you kind of have a hung jury? You know, they couldn't figure it out. They couldn't make their mind up. You know, you want a unanimous you know, decision with the jury. You don't want them to debate very long. You want, to, you want them to know that you are a follower of Jesus. And the way that is known is that you practice what you, what you preach. You, you seek to live out what you believe. You know, we say that we are followers of Jesus, but we have to consider whether or not we're actually following Jesus, right? Yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. That's, that's great. But are you actually following Him? And if so, your life, apart from Sunday morning, will line up more and more. It's not going to be perfect. We know that. That's why we confess our sin. We are a repentant people. We turn from our sin. We thank God for His forgiveness. We ask Him to change us and align us more and become more of the person He wants us to be. But we want to see ourselves grow in that because we are pillars. We are supporting Truth. We are proclaiming and displaying the truth of God, and we want to do it as accurately as we can. Now, I want to be clear on this because I think I think John Calvin said this, but he said that you know our our hearts are idle factories. In other words, we we don't we don't need a lot of room to begin to create this idea of works righteousness. So you may be thinking, well, Ron, are you saying we need to go out there and just do all these good works or God's going to you know, strike us down? No, that's not what I'm saying because you know, you're not made right with God because of how good you are. You need to understand the gospel and you don't need to get this wrong. You are not made right with God because of what you do. You are only made right with God because of what Christ has done. And there is a big difference. We do not obey God in order to be accepted by God. We are accepted by God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And based on that acceptance, out of an overflow of that acceptance, do we then seek to obey See, we don't obey God for fear of condemnation or exclusion from His family. We obey God because through faith in Jesus, we have been placed in His family. And so we obey, and our obedience flows then not out of fear of condemnation, but rather our obedience flows out of love and gratitude. That is a big difference. Do you see that difference? You, if you don't see that difference, then you don't understand the gospel. It is, that, it is that fundamental. And so when I say your conduct is a pillar of the truth, it is. But the reason we obey and we can conduct ourselves the way we do as believers is because of what Christ has done. Not in order to try to climb the ladder to God. We are accepted by God because of what Christ has done. And out of that relationship, that love that begins to, to grow in our hearts for God... 
and out of gratitude for what He's done, it, it compels us then to want to represent Him with our lives. And so we are, we are pillars of the truth, and we're also, Paul says, we are buttresses of the truth. And a buttress, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a support beam that keeps walls square. And the reality is, when you look outside uh, the church community into the greater community, you see that our, our culture, our community, is having a very difficult time getting their hands around what truth is. You know, they're trying to, you know, it's trying to find truth in our culture is, is like trying to nail jello to the wall. It's just not easy. It's slippery. It's, you know, how do you do it? And so the concept of truth, absolute truth, it's, it's evading everyone, everywhere we look. And so as the church, as we come together, we proclaim absolute objective truth because we believe truth rests on the existence of the living God. And that there is a reality that God Himself sees perfectly. And the more we know God, the better we see that reality as well. And so we are buttresses of truth. That we help square it up and show that truth is found on the foundation of who God is. And so we are pillars and we are buttresses of the truth. And the greatest truth that we've been entrusted with The greatest truth we've been entrusted with is what Paul calls the mystery of godliness. And what he does here in verse 16 is he, many believe what he's doing is he's quoting a song. So like if you were to have a top ten list of Christian songs in the first century, this would probably be like number one. I don't know how many there were, but this was one of them. And the mystery of godliness, in short, is is the amazing way that God has brought men and women like me and you and somehow made it possible for us to have a right relationship with Himself. That's the mystery of godliness. How does He do it? How did He do it? That's the mystery. And that mystery has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And so listen to the lyrics of this song, verse 16. He was manifest... I'm not going to sing it. Don't even... You know, Floyd, don't even... I'm not even going to do it. I can't do it. I don't know what the beat would be for this song. It's first century... Okay, so he was manifested in the flesh. So the Son of God, took, he took on flesh, he dwelt among us. The incarnation. You know, Jesus is fully God, fully man. <clears throat> He's vindicated by the Spirit. So as you read Jesus' life, uh, the Spirit of God verified, <clears throat> verified that Jesus is the Messiah. Seen by the angels, or seen by angels. You know, the angels, if you read the Scripture, this is fascinating. The angels... Uh, we're continually peering into the world to try to figure it out. How is God going to rec- reconcile all these different types of people and cultures to Himself and deal with this sin problem? How is He going to do that? They were peering into this world trying to figure out how God was going to do this great work of, of redemption. They were so curious. And then they witnessed the birth of Christ. And they were there. And then they saw... The, the life and the death of Christ. And they experienced, or they witnessed the resurrection of Christ. And they saw this great act of redemption unfold. Um, he was seen by the angels. Proclaimed among the nations. The truth of the gospel, when you read this in the scripture, this is Jesus 
Jesus' last words, Matthew 28, that the gospel should be proclaimed to the nations. We should make disciples of all nations. It should be proclaimed to every tribe, tongue, and nation on the planet. Believed on in the world. So not only should the gospel be proclaimed to the nations, but we see that the gospel, as it began to go out in the first century, and even now, is being embraced by the nations. And then taken up in glory. The ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God the Father, where He will remain until He comes again and brings in the kingdom of God in His fullness. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And this is what the church has been entrusted with to support and proclaim and to demonstrate through our lives in word and deed. So may we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for this word this morning from from your word that tells us that in Christ we are the household of God. We are the church of the living God. And we are a pillar and buttress of the truth. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for placing us in your family, in your house. Thank you for allowing us to be your dwelling place through the Holy Spirit. And God, I pray as we depart from this place, as we, as we scatter, as your assembled people scatter today, that we would be mindful that you go with us which should give us great boldness and courage to do what you want us to do and to carry out your mission. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.